Hi, everyone. This is Tom Salemi of Device Talks. Welcome to our second season of Medtronic Talks. In our first season, we spoke with the leaders of Medtronic's operating units to better understand the direction of each of the businesses. Now, with their courses set and clear, we're going to talk to the engineers, scientists, physicians, and other experts who are executing on these strategies. We'll still keep a tight focus on each of Medtronic's businesses, but we are going to get a lot deeper into these stories. Let's go. Hi, everybody. This is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to the Medtronic Talks podcast. Our guest today is Jason Fontana. Jason is Vice President, Global Coronary and Renal Dernovation and Marketing and Strategy at Medtronic. Jason's been in the coronary business uh, and at Medtronic for over a decade. We had a great conversation about uh, the growth of that sector, talked a lot about drug-eluting stents and uh, a great deal about where the business is headed in the future. So uh, excellent conversation with Jason Fontana. I know you will enjoy it. But before we begin this episode of Medtronic Talks, I'd like to bring in our sponsor, Delve. I'm speaking with Randy Copland. Randy is a senior principal mechanical engineer at Delve. Randy, tell us about Delve. Yeah, Delve is a full-service product development and innovation firm. And by full-service, what we mean is that we have a wide range of disciplines in-house, from insights and strategy, industrial design, interaction design, all the way to a strong engineering team uh, filled with electrical, mechanical, and human factor engineers. We have a long history of developing thousands of consumer, industrial, and medical products, including surgical instruments, drug delivery devices, home health care, all the way to complex medical diagnostic systems. Catheters are a specialty of ours. Uh, we've helped teams design new delivery systems, redesign existing systems, and anything else that they might need help with. We really become an extension of their in-house team. So Randy, I understand you're going to tell us three reasons why catheter design projects fail uh, throughout the rest of the podcast. Can you give us a, a teaser? Sure. The first reason that devices can fail is waiting too long to start the development process. All right. We'll hear more from Randy Copeland a little later in the podcast. If you'd like more information right now about Delve, Go to its website, delve.com. Well, Jason Fontana, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. I'm excited to talk about the coronary space. You've been through some uh, some wars on the uh, on the DES front. It's been a, a, an epic kind of Wild West scenario for the last 10 years. So I want to hear some some stories. But first, I want to hear your story about how you you came into to MedTech to begin with. Uh, you've got uh, sort of an interesting uh, uh, educationally, starting off with, with pharmacology. I don't know if I've seen that degree yet from anyone I've talked to uh, uh, for a podcast. So tell me about your path into uh, into MedTech, into Medtronic, please. Sure. Just a slightly windy road, but yeah, I got a, <laughs> I got a PhD. <laughs> I got a PhD in pharmacology uh, way back uh, at Yale. And, and at the time, I was working on basically how the body responds to either uh, blood pressure going up or how the body uh -huh. responds to uh, areas of, of stress, you know, whether you're having atherosclerosis or something, how the body tries to take care of it. And um, while I was there, I had a great mentor and got Bill Sessa in the team, and, and he was very open to as long as you were, you know, doing your stuff and publishing, you kind of check out other things. So I went over to the Business school was kind of checking out things, and I saw this ad for pharmaceutical advertising company. So uh, I ended up applying for like a medical and science associate at a pharmaceutical advertising company, and 
kind of made a hard right turn literally from the bench one week to <laughs> being in Manhattan the next week. <laughs> so it was a little bit of a crazy, crazy moment in time for a graduate student, but got to learn, you know, kind of on the job training. I was really fortunate to be working for two of our senior executives here at Metronica, a woman named Nina Goodhart and a gentleman named Sean Salmon, and got to really, you know, kind of sit, you know, right in the cockpit for all the trials and tribulations of pharmaceutical advertising. So that was how I spent, you know, really three years out of grad school and then got the opportunity to come to Medtronic and join Sean at the time. And I had a role which was kind of heading up our kind of clinical science area. So presentations and publications as we were entering into this crazy world of drug eluding stents. So that was that was my first role here at Medtronic. So, wow. Yeah. Of course, fun. we've had Nina and Sean both on, on the podcast before. So people are likely familiar with them if they're uh, regular listeners. So, well, that's great. Yeah. I'm sure that was quite a transition from uh, grad school to, to, to New York City, but uh, worked out well for you so far. I want to talk about the, the coronary space. So when you joined Medtronic, were you involved with, uh, with the DES, the drug eluding stent program at the time? And what was that? I love to sort of get a sense of what that was, how that was then compared to now, because it was in preparing for this interview. And I know I'm asking an exceedingly long question. I kind of forgot how crazy it was reading all the articles about all the studies that were going on. I mean, there was really like a, a horse race going on for in the DES space. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a horse race that I would say, I would say, you know, Metrotic, we were <laughs> a distant third when this race started, <laughs> you know, we kind of, they shot the gun to start the race and we were kind of waiting around a little bit, not, not because we didn't want to, but it just took us a while to get in the race. And so I joined, I joined literally right when we uh, had just launched our, our first product called Endeavor outside the United States. And so I was involved in from kind of the, the evidence generation and science side of bringing that to the U S and, and that was our first kind of foray into DES. And it was, it was, it was tough because you had, you had Boston scientific with taxes and you had, you had, um, you had Cordis with Cypher, and we were kind of the, the first, you know, third player in the marketplace. And at that time, it was we had a different product. You know, it was all about this thing back then was called late loss, and it was kind of the amount of material that would grow inside the stent. And they had these low late losses, and we came in with one that was higher. And so trying to kind of figure our way where the whole world was focused on a lower number, and we had a higher number, what would that mean? And you know, that's kind of began our journey around safety. We had found out that maybe this product might have a little less of this thing called late stent thrombosis. And so Endeavor seemed to have a, a profile of healing with it, which was funny because that's what I did my PhD on related oh. to, how to how the stent would heal. Right. And so it seemed like there may be a, a safety benefit to having, you know, a little more kind of material inside the stent. So that kind of got us on this journey of, of drug eluding stents. So it was an so, interesting time. But it must there must have been a lot of lessons learned. What was it like sort of dealing with uh with clinicians back then, with physicians, with hospitals? I mean there was just the rules were sort of being written as you went along because it was a new technology and it was one that was really just carving out this whole new business in medtech. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was you know, in both Cordis and Boston, just these two formidable competitors, and they've been battling it out forever. And so in, in some respects, we we tried to come to the market as kind of not really going at either one of them, yeah. just being an alternative. It was a different time to try to have a conversation with physicians about something very different than what they were used to using. The one 
benefit and hallmark we always had and, and kind of continued through has been a deliverability of our product. And, and the design back then of our kind of backbone of Endeavor was, was incredibly deliverable. So it was a lot of physician conversations, a lot of utilization, and then getting kind of why you were different and, and where you should be used maybe more than the others. So it was kind of learning how to carve out your space, I would say, at that time. And, and then we, you know, as we transitioned from Endeavor to our next generation product, which was called Resolute Integrity, it kind of brought us the best of both worlds. We had this kind of safety benefit we brought from Endeavor to Resolute Integrity, but then now we had this kind of efficacy benefit and we had this really, really strong deliverability. So that that's kind of when I would say we were able to really go after the marketplace mm-hmm. in a big way was that point in time. Interesting. And how do you define deliverability? E- ease of deliverability or just certainty that once it's delivered, it's going to stay there? What, what are the hallmarks of good deliverability? All right, we're back with Randy Copland, Senior Principal Mechanical Engineer at Delve. Randy, at the top of the podcast, you indicated that one of the reasons that catheter design projects fail is that designers wait too long to design the delivery system. Can you tell us a little bit more? Sure thing. Often the development team solely focused on the implant and the delivery system can lag behind in development. And we've seen clients with early prototypes in the lab, you know, really held together with tape and glue and really struggling to use it and struggling to uh, actually deliver the implantable, um, which can cause a lot of issues. And how does Delve set up the process for success? So once the implant of the device starts to take shape, um, begin development of the delivery system. Early development can sometimes help out the distal end as well. One example of an opportunity we discovered was co-developing the implant and delivery system was we were able to lower the sheathing forces and improve valve sheathing by adding some tension on the implant while sheathing in the delivery system. I can't go into too many more details about that because of confidentiality, but it was a big help in the end. All right, well, that's number one. Randy, what is the second reason that catheter design projects fail? The second reason is not focusing enough on usability. I know that can become a little bit cliche these days, but you know, I have a good example of that. We were hired to work on a next generation device. And what we did as an exercise was come up with a visual workflow for the team of their existing IFU or instructions for use. We gather the product managers, uh, the field clinical engineers, everybody together. And we basically presented back what their IFU was. And that spurred a lot of discussion. And you quickly realize that maybe people aren't using it exactly as the IFU says, or maybe they're teaching it a little bit different. And that brought a lot of consensus to help design the next generation device. So how can this framework actually help with design? So getting specific, this framework really gives you a good macro view of the overall procedure. And what we like to do is then dive in and get some of the micro details into that framework. So understanding, does a physician have one hand or two hands available at certain parts of the procedure? Um, Where are their eyes? Are their eyes looking at the device? Are they looking up at a monitor? Um, What else is gathering their attention? And depending on the answer to some of these questions, it can be very directional for the design of the delivery device. And how do these questions inform the design of the delivery system? So once you have a better understanding of the structure of the problem, you can start working on solutions. And two different approaches we like to work on are sort of an outside-in or an inside-out design. For an outside-in design, it's when the user or the physician has high restrictions. They can only use one hand. They only have one finger available. So there we pick the ideal user interaction and then have supporting mechanisms or engineering to support that. For an inside-out approach, sometimes it's not as restricted. The physician might have both hands available. 
might be able to look down at the device. And for this sort of design, we pick the optimal internal design, most efficient, whatever it might be, and then match that with a complementing user interaction. Then we like to prototype, fail, and repeat as often as we can. And building off of the first failure point we discussed, the earlier you can start development of the delivery device, the more iterations you can test and continually improve the device. All right, well, there's two great reasons. What is the final reason? The third reason is when teams don't consider manufacturing during their development process. Far too often, we've seen projects that had to pivot after realizing what they have designed either isn't manufacturable or is too difficult to manufacture, and they don't have enough design margin between failure and success. And how can this be avoided? So once the design starts to show promise, begin creating a plan of how the device is going to be made. Is it going to be machined, injection molded, and then focus on the sub-assemblies? You know, are there any gluing operations or welding? How can these sub-assemblies be tested and tested to ensure that they're safe? A lot of unsung work goes on in process development where the team tests a failure and can confidently know what the design margins are. We like to identify any high-risk operations early and spend time to develop these processes instead of waiting to the end and rushing through. You mentioned design margin. Can you tell us a little bit more about design margin? Design margin is when you test a failure and then compare that value uh, to your design criteria. So for example, if a hub on a catheter takes 40 pounds of tensile load to to sheathe the stent and your glue joint happens to fail at 45 pounds, you have five pounds of design margin. Now, if you can test a thousand units and that brake force is consistently 45 pounds with a low standard deviation, it might be okay. But where you can create a larger gap between those numbers helps create a more robust product. And in the end, it's all about patient safety. And hopefully by beginning development early, focusing on usability and manufacturing, you can improve your development process and avoid some common failures. That's fantastic. Thanks, Randy. And thank you, Delve, for sponsoring this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. For more information, go to delve.com. That's D-E-L-V-E.com. Interesting. And how do you define deliverability? Ease of deliverability or just certainty that once it's delivered, it's going to stay there? What What are the hallmarks of good deliverability? Yeah, great, great question. And when physicians, when these patients come into the hospital, they have really complex vasculature. So, you know, think of a plumber coming into your house and he's got to get to a pipe that's super far away from the sink that's backed mm-hmm. up, right? How does he get there? He gets that snake and he tries to get all the way to that spot. And it's similar in your in your heart. You know, you have a, a patient that comes in, they have incredibly windy, torturous anatomy, and they need to get that stent to that spot and be able to deliver that stent to that spot. And and so deliverability from a physician's perspective is, can I manipulate the catheter and the stent to get it to go where I need it to go in, in a very tight vessel or an environment? So that's, that's kind of where we've been able to excel over the past really 15 years now. And you talked a bit about this before, but with the, each iteration of, of drug eluting stent that you came out, what were you iterating toward? Was it toward a safer stent, a, a more efficacious stent? Again, deliverability, and it sounds like it's all three. It's a bit of a combination of all three, right? And I I think at your first and foremost, with any of our device technologies, you want to have a safe product. And then obviously you need it to be effective. And one of the things we realized probably in this space that we knew we could continue to iterate, we have, you know, amazing, amazing engineers, and they can continue to make the product more deliverable which then gives you access to treating these more complex patients because you can now treat lesions that maybe you couldn't reach before. So that's kind of one area we continue to innovate on. 
And the other area is more the holistic thought process around the patient. So yes, the patient has a lesion, but he also has the rest of his body that is the patient, right? So what was realized is that patients, when they get a drug-eluting stent, they have to take called duoantiplatelet therapy, and it's either Plavix or others plus aspirin, and they have to take that for a prolonged period of time. That often, you know, you get kind of bruising or you get a cut when you're shaving. It becomes a real hassle in these patients' lives because they're trying to prevent a potential late stent thrombosis, right? So this is an added thing that happens to patients. And so what we realized was that this was a really big unmet need for physicians and patients. How long do I prescribe duantiplate therapy? Mm-hmm. How long will my patient take duantiplate therapy? So not only were we iterating on the stent side and making things more deliverable, but we wanted to generate evidence in this space and say, hey, we think you're going to be okay with your patients if you prescribe Plavix for 30 days. And giving that time point so now physicians and patients could have the conversation about how long they should take their medication. So those were probably the two big areas that we've iterated on and developed from an innovation perspective, you know, making our technology more and more deliverable and then bringing the evidence forward that, that we think it helps holistically think about the patient. Really interesting. And, and how would you define the, your relationship with interventionalists who perform your procedures, the doctors who were involved with this? And, and these iterations and developing new strategies and new approaches, were they equal partners in this shoulder-to-shoulder sort of They've got a new procedure. They're certainly getting better at it. They're probably finding ways to get places they couldn't get the previous year. What was that process like working with surgeons who are, who are growing alongside you? I could tell you it's probably why we get out of bed. It's yeah. what makes medical device, this, the industry, so different from, you know, having been in pharmaceutical space and in the device industry now for almost 17 years. It's, it's that interaction and that real-time feedback from your customers. And, you know, the interventional cardiologists, not only are they great minds, great thinkers, but their hands are, are they have the ability to do things with their hands in these patients that, you know, just spectacular and, and, and really unbelievable. And so you get that tactile feedback from them. They're working with our engineers. They're saying, change this, change that, make this, make that. And it's really a, it's really a partnership. And I think it's very unique across all of medical devices, uh, how we work with our physicians. In our world, it's it's interventional cardiologists, but I would say the same for all the other uh, devices that come forward. Interesting. Now, let's talk a bit about the progression of, of stents. So, you mentioned Resolute Integrity ES. Read in the notes that this was uh, the, f- the first D- drug-eluting stent to be indicated for use in, in diabetic patients. What is the significance of that? Why was that difficult before? Maybe I should know this, but I'm not picking up on it. No, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. And it's two parts to this question. One is, you know, unfortunately, diabetic patients always had maybe a, a tendency to have more restenosis, which is kind of the, the stent closing up over time, more, more scar tissue. Of course. Going. Yep. And so what we did was we, we kind of designed our studies to be able to tell us how we performed in diabetic patients. And so by doing that in a, in a pro, prospective way, that enabled us to get the indication. So that allows us to do two things. One, we can prove, you know, are, are we better in a diabetic patient population or can we at least be the same as the normal population, which we did? The second, it allows you to have that indication, which then allows you to educate and talk about your product of the use of diabetics. And so that coupled really enabled us to have another area that we could carve out. And we got, we talked before about kind of the market dynamics here. If you could start to build these 
kind of beachheads that you can carve out, mm. um, they become really important for you uh, as you talk about differentiating your product. Interesting. So talk a bit about the portfolio now in coronary and DES. What are, what are your offerings? Yeah, so it's been great. You know, we, we started with this kind of resolute integrity, which kind of we changed away. We kind of made our stent and, and now we've evolved. We just recently launched a product called Onyx Frontier. So we've evolved forward where we've changed the makeup of the stent. So inside the stent, there's a, a platinum iridium core. So you can see it better. You know, when, when physicians are doing these procedures on their angiograms, you can kind of see where the stent's placed. We also changed the, the stent over the years where we've made the stent more flexible, more deliverable in how we make it. And then finally, with this later iteration, we, we changed what the stent sits on. It sits on a balloon. It sits on a delivery system. We changed that and added more deliverability. So what we have today is, is you know, and, and again, definitely biased opinion here, but, <laughs> but opinion that's backed up by our customer base because you know, we always have these feelings, you know, oh, we're building a better product. It's going to be more deliverable. But I swear, the first time you see a physician use it, you know, and it's in their hospital and in their world and they're using it in a really complex situation, you kind of have that moment like, geez, did we really do this the right way? And then <laughs> the physician gets to where they need to go and they turn to you and they look and they go, this thing is different. And and that's when you know, you know, you've built something or you've worked with the engineers to build something that is that is really needed for them. And so that's where we are right now. We're, we just launched the Onyx Frontier Stent and the feedback worldwide so far has been been really positive from our physician community, which is great. What are some of the, the innovative elements of, of the Onyx Frontier? Is that we, I guess looking at deliverability, is that, how is it different than, than Resolute in terms of getting it to where it needs to go? Yeah, so from each iteration, so we kind of went from Resolute Integrity and then we improved upon that with Resolute Onyx. And then from Resolute Onyx, we improved upon it again with the Onyx Frontier stent. And it's lower profile. So it's a, it's, it's basically, you know, smaller. So it gets into tighter places. Uh, and then it's got the ability to be more deliverable. And we test that by putting it through all these different crazy maze models and we can get further in those models than the Onyx product can. So. You know, what we're excited about is we've taken kind of this history of evidence that we've generated on our stent technology, and now we've put it on on what we think is the backbone or kind of our delivery system that makes it even more deliverable. And, you know, the tagline we've been using is, is great, just got better. And and we put a lot of these taglines together when you're in marketing. You always think, <laughs> oh, I got the perfect one, you know? And a lot of times you're, you're not as perfect as you think you are, but with been great about this one is hearing physicians say it back to us, right? You know, wow, you guys said great, got better, great, just got better, and I wasn't believing you, but really, you did, you made it better, and so that's been the fun part with with, with this product. That's interesting. I want to just uh, don't ask about COVID anymore, but uh, this is one space where I imagine there's been a it was impacted more than than most. I mean, it's not an elective surgery by any means, but uh, people people certainly put this off longer than they needed to. What what have been the past? two and a half years been, what were, what was 2021 like for you? And, and what did you have to adapt to help patients understand that they needed care and to help them get that care? Yeah. You know, and, and I'll, I'll maybe go back a little bit in, into 2020, you yep. know, it, it was, it was really, we had heard from our, from our physician community, you know, on, on, Fortunately or unfortunately, we were, we were telling patients, you know, over the age of 65, if you had chest pain to stay at home, Right. If you if you if you had cough to stay at home and the ramifications of that was that people were having heart attacks at home. They weren't coming to the hospital. 
And so, you know, we, we partnered with, with our societies, the FCAI, which is the Interventional Cardiology Society, and then AHA to put in place programs to work with our physician community, but then try to reach patients where, hey, if you're having chest pain or you, or even, you know, uh, signs of a stroke, you need to call 911. You need to go to the hospital. And that's probably where it started was just helping patients understand that, yes, COVID is out there. But when you're having a heart attack, you need to go get treated and it's safe to get treated, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think the flip side of this was, you know, you know, our physician community at the beginning of this, we have to remember that nobody really understood what was going on. So physicians themselves were going through the process of how do I treat somebody with COVID having a heart attack? Mm -hmm. What's the protocols and procedures? How do I take, how do I take care of this patient? So that was a lot of work early on, you know, Again, partnering with societies, working and hearing from our physicians and just passing along that information that, that we tried to do. And, and really, this is a broader effort across Medtronic we tried to do. What also changed at that point in time is, is how you communicate, right? All of us, you know, all of us are changing. You know, I don't think any of us thought we'd be doing this much Zoom um, and, <laughs> and, and be back to excited to see people again. But how we communicate the the digital movement of information and how we talk to our customers really changed over that period of time, which is, again, getting back to what we talked about before, our feedback from our customers involves their hands. It's very hard to get tactile feedback on a Zoom call, right? So how do we set up situations that are safe, situations in which people are comfortable so we can continue to move forward on our R&D projects accordingly? So it was an interesting time in a lot of ways and continues to be, to be frank. Uh, how did the inability to see people and see your interventionalist impact uh, the release of Onyx? Did it slow things down at all? Did it? I think that we have really an amazing team, and and I would say that the core team of engineers and and functions behind the Frontier product really came together in different ways. They, you know, first of all, they found ways to safely continue the R and D work, and and teams were coming in. Similarly, they, they continue to work cross-functionally and, and then some of these individuals would bring stuff home and then send it back to somebody else. And so they can keep the, the work going on. And I think the other thing I would say, Tom, that's probably maybe a little bit lost in all this is what our operations groups went through and, and the work they did at our manufacturing facilities to continue to manufacture our product, continue to now bring on new manufacturing lines for a new product. And do that all safely within the confines of rules and regulations and really safety of, of the employees. And so that was a big, a big part of what was done too, to keep kind of keep this ball rolling from a procedure perspective and treating our patients. Well, let's look forward a bit to a new area. Uh, you've got a strategic partnership with, with CathWorks. Tell us a bit about CathWorks. What is it and what service are they offering? Sure. Maybe, maybe I'll start with, with how we got to CathWorks. Sure. Um, one of the things that's, that's been, one of the things that's kind of amazing about the coronary space is the sheer volume. You know, there's, there's roughly 7 million procedures a year growing at 5% worldwide. So this is a huge, huge volume of procedures done each year. The good and bad of that, the good is you get to treat a lot of patients. The, the bad in that is that with that volume comes different pressures from, from whether it's, whether it's hospitals or institutions or governments applying different pricing pressures to that procedure. And so we've been seeing a, a shift in where the dollars were being spent from kind of your core products that help 
whether that's all the products and the scent that help you get there, to more data and understanding of information in these procedures. And not, quite frankly, that different than what we've seen in our consumer lives. We're spending more dollars on understanding data and, and consuming data. Mm-hmm. So what CathWorks is, is a company that in when you're doing coronary procedures, you, you first kind of take a look at the angiogram and, and you'll see maybe where you think a blockage might be. A lot of times, and now there's been great data that have shown, it's good for you to go in and check what's called fractional flow reserve. And, and that's simply checking the flow before the lesion and after the lesion to understand, is there a difference in flow? And if that flow is altered, you should treat that, right? The way that's predominantly done right now is it uses wires. So it's an invasive approach uh, to, to measuring that flow. You're often given an agent that would would cause the, the heart to constrict a little bit more so you get kind of the flow moving through that so you can measure it easier. So what CathWorks is, is a way to measure, it's called FFR angio. So they have a non-invasive way. So you don't have to put a wire down, but they're able to measure the flow in that vessel and actually the entire coronary vasculature from the angiogram. So they use, they use an algorithm, they use AI, and they can read the flow in all these different vessels just based on how off of having the angiogram. So when you think of the opportunity here, you know, and you start to think about all the procedures that are happening and now the ability to bring a non-invasive way to get better diagnostic tool, a better diagnosis of your patient to then treat, it's a perfect kind of merger, right? For, from a diagnosis and then a treatment partnership with CathWorks. Do the measurements taken this way differ than the more traditional way? And in, in, in that, I mean, is someone more likely or less likely to require a stent after going through an FFR NGO? Great question. So the kind of dividing line is the same, whether you are putting a wire or not putting a wire mm-hmm. down and kind of that, that choice of making uh, or doing a procedure. So you get the same output but you get it in a very different way. You get it in, in a non-wire-based way and a, a non-invasive way. I imagine because it's less invasive and doesn't require a procedure, more people can be tested. Is that the point? Yeah, so you can, the, the idea is that you can, you know, pretty much your standard is you start every procedure with an angiogram. Now, our goal is to generate the evidence so that every procedure would start with an angiogram and an FFR angio. So if it would become part of the framework, and that's exactly right, you would be able to access and identify more patients. At the same time, you can use that to follow through the procedure because at any point in time in that procedure, you can do another FFR angio without putting another device inside the patient because you can Mm -hmm. do it from the angiograms you have. So you could do it potentially pre, during, and post-procedure. And then the thing that's really neat about it, you get a full picture of somebody's uh, full coronary vasculature that can go home with them, right? So you can send that back to the referring physician. You can send that back to the cardiologist. You can send it to the patient. They have a picture of their heart. They know what vessel was treated. They know which ones maybe I got to keep an eye on and when I should come back for checkups. And so it really, in a lot of ways, it's that data that guides you through this whole process from a procedure that now we're able to, to bring to bear through this partnership. Well, let's look forward a bit. I mean, where are the opportunities for advancement technologically in, in, in this space? I'm, now you've got me thinking about sensors and I think about like 
orthopedic implants with sensors on them? Are we going to have, or do we already have drug eluting stents with sensors on them that will tell you that, you know, your pressure is going up? Might want to have that looked at. Where where are we with data and inputs yeah, and sensors? It's really exciting, right? I mean, and we're getting into this space, but but obviously, you know, our competitors in this space are also, you know, understanding data, right? And and understanding what they can do with data. And I think that's that's the thing that I get really excited about. You know, I was talking with a physician a couple of weeks ago, and we were. We were joking, you know, he, he used the, the, the Castleworth technology for the first time and why he was using it. He kept, he kept testing it against the wire, right? He's like, I don't believe it. And then he would test it against the wire. It would be the same, right? And we started laughing because he has a really nice car and, <laughs> and he, you know, he's in the city and he never parallel parks himself. He lets the car parallel park for him, right? So I was like, well, you're letting your car parallel park for you, but why, why are you insisting on putting in a wire down in a patient? And we, and I think that's ultimately, can we get to the point where we're doing pilot assist for our customers, for mm-hmm. our, for our physicians? Are we using this data to not only predict and have better understanding of what the makeup of the patient is, but then in that procedure, better understand or better guide a physician through that procedure and then put all this together on the back end, right? And, 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 through this kind of loop, can we understand and use this data ultimately to treat our patients better? And I think that's the exciting part is we're just just scratching the surface on it. You know, I if you if you would have asked me five years ago if I'd use my face to buy things on my iPhone, I would have laughed. Right, <laughs> but now now I'm, I'm ordering everything on Amazon with my face. Right, and so I think we're, we don't know what we don't know, but I can tell you that being at the center of it all and using data differently. And having that insight-driven care is really going to be the next phase for all of us. And you, you know, it's funny you mentioned sensors, but but why not, right? Yeah. Why not put a sensor on a balloon that tells you, hey, you've blown it up enough, don't blow it up anymore, right? Or you should blow it up a little bit more. Or even if you had a sensor on a sense that could let you know, hey, the flow's changed a little bit. Or maybe, you know, maybe you should think about going in. That that would be crazy. That would be fantastic if we can get there. It's, it's, I, I was wondering, looking back to, we, we started this conversation in 2006 or so. Do you look at those offerings and look at what you have today? Did you think we'd get to this spot where we are today, given where you were 16 years ago? I would have imagined, I would have imagined we've got to this spot from, you know, and I think Medtronic and beyond from a device perspective, sheer device perspective, because our physicians are always pushing us to be better. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, you know, the, the devices that have come out, whether or not, not even just stents, but all the devices that help physicians access patients in a different way. I, I would have, I would have thought we've done, we would have gotten there. But I think where we are now, you know, kind of this nev- next evolution of utilization of data, I think that one's pretty exciting. I, you know, and that's, that's something that probably was not on my radar when I was scrolling on my Blackberry in 2005. <laughs> so, that's right. So I, I fully admit I was, I was a keyboard guy. I held on to the last minute. So oh, I but, still uh, miss the keyboard. But, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's, that's the exciting part. I mean, and that's the opportunity we have at hand, which is definitely something that has changed. Fantastic. Well, this has been a, a fun conversation and uh, it's great to uh, to learn about how we got to where we are. So, uh, Jason, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Tom, I really appreciate it. It's been a blast. Thank you. Well, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on this episode of the Medtronic Talks podcast. 
Thanks to Dell for sponsoring this episode. And thanks, of course, to Jason Fontana for making himself available. Great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Make sure you subscribe to the Medtronic Talks podcast on any major podcast application. Please also share this episode on your social media channels. You can share it on Twitter, you can share it on LinkedIn. And when you do, please tag me. You can connect to me on both I am on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I, or on Twitter at MedTechTom. I would love to connect and uh, hear your thoughts about this and future Medtronic Talks podcast episodes. While you're subscribing to podcasts, please make sure you check out Device Talks podcast as well. We've got a lot of great uh, episodes coming your way of Device Talks Weekly and our other podcasts. So please do check it out. Thanks again for joining us. We have many great episodes of the Medtronic Talks podcast coming your way. So make sure you do subscribe and uh, we'll see you next time.